Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. Uh, if you're joining us online, we welcome you. And uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking uh, about what Jesus has to say to us in Matthew chapter 18. If you have a Bible or Bible app, go ahead and get it warmed up. Uh, and while you're doing that, uh, let me just say we've got a, a choir coming in to do some Mozart this afternoon. So if you're a classical music snob or, or whether uh, you're, you're basically a, a hayseed that doesn't listen to classical ever and you would like a cultural experience, let me encourage you to come. Uh, the Center Corral from over to the California Center for the Arts will be here at 3 o'clock. Um, one of the blessings of, of being able to uh, host inside this facility is just all the great things that come through here. Uh, so I wanted to make you aware of that. All right, Matthew chapter 18, we begin uh, with a trip to Disney. Last September 8th, which is my wedding anniversary, the 21st anniversary of my um, marriage to my amazing wife, my wife and I are at that phase of life where we often forget to um, plan things like that. It kind of sneaks up on you, and the next thing you know, it's like next week or whatever. Uh, so we're kind of like, oh, you know what? What should we do? And we decided to do something we had never done, which is simply, we're, let's just go to Disneyland. Like, let's just go. Just us. No kids. Just us. Uh, and so we decided we would go to California Adventure on that particular day because the last time we were there, uh, it was a, a chaotic experience. And it got me uh, thinking because as the day, as I went through the day, uh, I found myself not being aggravated uh, or tired. I was not particularly sweaty and it was not particularly expensive. Uh, I mean, it was expensive to buy the tickets, but once you got in the park, when you only got two of you instead of five, uh, the economics of it make more sense than going with a family of five. So I, I got to the end of the day, and I was like, you know what? Uh, I like Disney. I've hated it until now, but I, I kind of like that. I enjoy that. Oh, I got a clap from my mom over here. You know what I'm saying? So I go, well, okay, why did I enjoy it now? But I, I, I found myself going, I needed a vacation after going to Disneyland with my kids younger. And it, and, and it occurred to me that the missing ingredient was, was what made it great is that the children were missing and from, the, from the occasion. Now, now those of you who are going, oh, you're a bad father. Listen, I, I, I did three times, man. I had three daughters. And when you're a young dad, uh, you have two roles. One is, uh, well, three, disciplinarian, if need be. Two, water fetcher, for mom especially. She gets thirsty and whatever. Uh, and uh, four, three is line holder. Hey, we'll be back in two hours. You go ahead and get in line for the bumper cars or whatever. We'll be back in two hours. <laughs> and then the one after that is, is your child carrier on the shoulders. All right? So what you end up doing is um, taking whichever kid is tired and throwing them on your shoulders. Now, uh, a lot of people never have to do that. Um, but in, when they're like little infants, it's an anxiety-producing event because you're always worried about a diaper situation. You put them up there. And you're always paying attention to, you know, for the thunder before the lightning, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so you're like, you're walking around all day just kind of paying attention to the back of your neck uh, when that's happening. But they're not heavy. As they get older, two, three years old, then they're heavy. And so then you're sitting there, and it's August, and you're in Anaheim, and, and you know, the lines are huge, and you got them on your shoulders, and everything's cramping up your shoulders, neck, and you take them off, you know, you kind of... Uh, and then you realize, you know, I can't get back up <laughs> at some point. It wears you out. You get tired and sore. Uh, and, and I went years without realizing that the grudges that I held against people were like these 
40-pound bags that I carried around everywhere I went. That, except it wasn't like a kid who at least brings you joy along the way. It was more like a big bag of fertilizer uh, that kind of provides a sour smell wherever you go and is just as heavy and gives you nothing in return. All it does is take away your joy. All it does is make what could be a pleasant experience extremely bad or slightly uh, odoriferous and heavy when it doesn't have to be. And when I had to preach this text, this particular one, for the very first time when I was in my 20s, I looked at this text and I, I tried to find all sorts of explanations, uh, ways around it, uh, way, reasons that was wrong, and all of a sudden I, I had to confront what's being said here because it's being said to the apostle Peter and it's being spoken to Peter as a result of a very simple question. How many times should I forgive my brother? And like Peter, when I am asked that question, I respond with a low number. Peter says, up to seven times? Like he thinks that's a lot. It's not a lot. And in fact, Jesus will go the extra mile and basically say, hey, listen, the reason you continue to forgive and you don't keep score uh, is because... Uh, when you're keeping score, that's a sign you've really not forgiven. Now, this is going to be, at the moment, an unpleasant journey, all right? But if you'll hang with me, if we'll allow the, the, the parable to speak to us, my hope is you, there will be bags of fertilizer being chucked aside uh, throughout this place today, okay? And that we're going to walk out of here a little freer than when we came in, a little lighter than when we first came in. Uh, we're going to read now Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 to 35. Now, it's a little longer, but stick with it. Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servant. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. By the way, that's a lot of money, all right? About $6 billion in that time's wages. Who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all he had in payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I'll pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will repay you. He refused and he went out and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all the debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. All right, let's recap here. Jesus tells this parable in response to Peter, who asked him, how many times should I forgive my brother? 
Peter counts low. Seven. Now, depending on the text you're reading, it could be 77 or it could be 70 times seven. If it's 70 times seven, that's a reversal likelihood of a, of a story that's told in Genesis chapter four, a guy named Lamech, which is French for the mech. And he ends up going through this whole thing and he ends up saying, giving this un, ne, never ending wrath formula. How often will God be angry? And he says all this time, 70 times seven. Essentially, this is a reversal of this kind of a thing. Uh, a reversal of Lamech's never-ending wrath formula. He says, essentially, what Jesus is saying is, the one who counts hasn't forgiven. When I was a kid, I used to live to play Yahtzee. Anybody love Yahtzee? Yes. I thought, you know what? Scott Kramer was sitting there in the first service. That must be the Yahtzee seat. Everybody likes Yahtzee. Sits there. Yeah, so Yahtzee, or if you're more of a poker player, picture a... Uh, a uh, blackjack table or picture a, a poker table, okay? Five card draw, whatever your game is, all right? But in Yahtzee, what's great is you roll the dice and whatever comes up, you kind of pick how mu- what, what, where you want to allocate that roll. So let's say you roll your first roll and there's two ones in there. You say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pick ones. And so you take the two ones, you set them aside and you keep rolling until you get what you want to get, all right? Um, when we keep scoring Yahtzee, now you can also roll it the same way and say, okay, there's a one and a two and a three and a four and a five, and I'm going to make a straight out of this. But it's the same roll, same dice combo, but you get to assign to it whatever value you want. It's a little bit like when you're playing poker, and, uh, you know, you get a two, a two, a four, a six, and a five or something. You're missing the three, but you're like, okay, should I go with a pair here, or should I try and build a straight out of this? You get the same deal, but you get to assign the value you want to it. Most people do sin that way, right? I, 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 when it comes to my sin, I will assign it the value I think it deserves. And when it comes to yours, I will do the same. So uh, what you think is really not a big deal, I hold to be a huge deal. You have sinned against me. Thou sinneth against myself, all right? And then if I'm sinning against you, then I minimize the value of that. I go, oh, that's just, that's just a couple of ones. That's not a big deal. That's a, that's a pair of twos. But what you did to me was a full house. It was, I'm going to assign the value that I think it ought to have. And when we, that's one of the reasons we're not very trustworthy with this particular thing. It's like the unforgiving servant. He sees the debt owed to him as a huge debt, and the debt he was forgiven is not a very big debt. In the parable, a king does an audit of those who has control over his account, and he discovers about a $6 billion shortfall. That's not small. In that day's wages, it had been about $6 billion, with a B, okay? About 100,000 times a day's wages. 100,000 times a day's wages. And so the king's prepared to throw the debtor and his entire pr- uh, family into prison indefinitely. They were old school back then. Well, you may not have any money, but you've got children and a wife and everybody, so we're gonna, just going to take you all, round you up, throw you into prison to pay, until you pay off the debt. But the debt is so large, it simply can't be repaid. He knows this, and so he asks for time to repay. But instead of saying, okay, I'll give you an extra year, the king says, I'm just going to forgive it. You'll never be able to repay it anyway, so I'm just forgiving it. Act two, same servant leaves then, and instead of being grateful and moving forward and paying it forward and doing things like he, you know, treating people the way he'd been treated by God, that's not how it works. The same servant is now owed roughly 100 days wages, not 100,000 like he owed, 
100 days wages, one point, I'm sorry, 0.1% of what he owed. And so he grabs the guy, it says he chokes him and screams, pay me what you owe. The servant likewise begs for time to repay and instead he doesn't even give him an extension. He says, throw him in prison. Word gets back to the king who had forgiven the unrepayable debt and he's outraged by the hypocrisy that he sees and so he has him delivered to the, what says in the text, jailers, torturers is a better translation. Meaning, this is not the country club prison where the guy plays golf in the morning and, and you know, has free movie, has Netflix in his cell. This is, no, you're going to be, the text says, tortured until they repay the debt. And then Jesus ends with this ominous storm cloud saying, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Well, that doesn't seem fair. After all, my sin's just a pair of twos. In my eyes, that the one who offends me, full house, four aces, Yahtzee. Their sins are a Yahtzee. Mine's just the twos column. Look, I, I have one little tiny little dalliance with my assistant, and, and all of a sudden my wife thinks it's a big deal. But you remember that time when we had company in the house and she screamed at everybody? This is how we think. We think, oh, you know what? Hey, um, you know, my business partner, uh, after everything I've done, inviting him into business with me and everything like that, okay, so, so, so I cheated him out of a few bucks or whatever, but think about all the times that he didn't work as hard as he should have. What about that? You see, there's a funhouse mirror effect to us keeping the scorecard. Us being the scorekeeper, us being the one, and that's why, for instance, when, whenever a married couple is having trouble, almost without fail, I mean, I've seen hundreds of married couples with trouble. They both have scorecards. Except it's a little bit like Yahtzee in the sense that in Yahtzee, you keep your own scorecard, except it's the other way around. They don't have one that tallies their own sins. They only have the other person's scorecard. Okay, well, that one's going in the four of a kind column. That's a, that, that one was a doozy. Or you can work that off over the next 10 years, buddy. Or you know what? I can't get over the way that she made me feel at that particular point in time. Or she doesn't do this or he doesn't do that. And, and so we only keep the sin scorecard for others usually. We don't do it on our own. That's why when we read this parable, we, don't see our, we see ourselves clearly as the one who owes God a debt but we automatically saw ourselves as the one who is owed when it came to the second part of the story, did we not? Most of us did. Just how we see ourselves. But the beauty of this parable is that Jesus tells it in such a way that we're reminded that the root of why we forgive other people has nothing to do with the worthiness of the, the person who needs the forgiveness. It has to do with the worthiness of the one who forgave us and what he asks us to do. So we realize we don't forgive because of the worthiness of the sinner. We forgive because in Christ, God forgave us. We recognize that we live in a kingdom now that is run by a king who has forgiven us an unrepayable debt. And Jesus, our king, reminds us that those who want to be part of his kingdom need to imitate the incredible patience of the sovereign of that kingdom. He is our forgiver. 
He is the God who rules the kingdom in which we live, and thus forgiveness is rooted in his goodness toward us, not in the goodness of the person that we need to forgive. It's rooted in the gospel. And that's why it's very good practice for us to start there, to just say, all right, based on what God has forgiven me, let me take a look at, and then before you go to what you need to forgive somebody else, you miss somebody, yourself. So instead of going, let me think about who I need to forgive, think about what you may have done that needs forgiveness by somebody else. Because the other thing you realize is, you know what, a lot of human beings have forgiven me a lot of stuff. A lot of people I know have been very good to me. And they could have treated me this way, but they didn't. They showed me grace instead. They could have said, you know what, forget that. Or, or, or you know what, I'm done being your friend. Or I'm done with you. Or I'm whatever, right? That, that, that way of doing things and not looking past your own, we'll say the scorecard that others keep, to, to the one that you hold against others, uh, there's a stop that is missed from what God forgave you to what you think you need to forgive others, which is what you've been forgiven by others, okay? The grace you've received from other human beings. So by the time that we pass this stop and then this stop to get here, we're going to be a lot better off because we're going to realize I've been forgiven a ton by God and a ton by other people. So now, how then should I act toward this person? Now, forgiveness is a matter of the heart. It doesn't mean, and I want to be clear about this, because some people have had really serious, um, you know, abusive kind of situations and stuff like this. This doesn't mean, forgiveness does not mean that you go, okay, well, forget about it. Uh, I'm going to go move back in with my abusive ex-boyfriend or whatever the case may be. No, it's not that. Uh, but it's about what's going on in here. It may be that the right path is to separate yourself from that person in a particular way. But it's what goes on in here that he's interested with that usually bears fruit outside the body, right? But it's what goes on in here. There are ways to let that go so that the person who once essentially abused you in the past doesn't continue to do it on a daily basis from inside. They don't live rent-free in here and in here. Because there's no such thing as rent-free when it comes to home grudges. It's only expensive. And it's usually not expensive to them. It's a lot more expensive to you. That currency exchange rate is off and favors the person who, who has done, the, done you the, uh, the disservice or whatever the case may be, the betrayal. In this story, Jesus reminds us we've been forgiven a far greater debt by God than anybody owes us. This is one reason, by the way, that we continue to bring up the doctrine of sin in church, and it's really important. Because if you don't think you sin and you don't think that anything you do is a big deal or an offense to God or to anybody else, then you don't think you've been forgiven anything. You know, you're a generally great guy or gal uh, who may have done something slightly inconvenient to some people. And so what's the big deal? Now, we feel the crime against us when other people do certain things. Uh, we're like a... Um, you know, like a, like a soccer player running around the field checking people and laying them out, and then when somebody comes up and brushes against us, we flop on the field and roll around in agony as though we'd just been murdered by the invisible man. That's how, if you watch your life carefully, ask yourself, do my reactions to what people do to me, are they proportionate to what I have done to people? 
People are going to sin against each other. That's why Peter asked the question, how many times should I forgive him? He's saying he's probably got a person in mind, just like you do right now. A person, a group of people that you just go, you know what, I'm just done with them. Okay, that might be okay. The main thing is you need to make sure that this part is right. You need to let that go. And that may mean that you need to say to, to that group of people, okay, I think, I think it's better if we're not, we're not going to be ongoing friends, okay? Because I don't know if I can trust you with that, but I can forgive you. I can release it by the power of the gospel. When it's difficult to forgive, when we are tempted to allow bitterness and hurt to win the day, the scriptures say, or they remind us, Hebrews 12, 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. The rest of this sermon is going to be devoted to the tactical parts of dealing with, with hurt. Uh, because our hurt usually metabolizes into one of two approaches to dealing with pain. One is eye for an eye style. It's proactively vengeful. We say, all right, you hurt me, now I'm going to hurt you twice as bad. Or I'm going to pay you back for it and I'm going to do so with all the power that I can. We turn from Essentially, if we were a country, I was a peaceful nation. Now I'm a totalitarian regime. I respect neither friend nor foe. I'm, there, are, there will be no survivors when this thing is over. I'm going to take you out. Okay, so in this parable, uh, he makes a spectacle, the unmerciful servant does, of doing what he does to the guy who owes him the smaller debt. We know that because we know that there's a group of servants that saw the whole thing happen. He chokes him, he screams, you know, pay me back what you owe, and it's seen by a group of people who go then and tell the king what's happened. This is that, eye for an eye. But there are other options we pick, much more common, by the way. We pick the avoidance techniques. I'll give you three of them. There's probably 20 or 30 of them, but I'll give you three. One, the disappearing act. The disappearing act is one when a person or group of people vanish. They just poof, they're gone because they've been hurt by somebody. And the root here is that they can't handle the pain of reconciling or forgiving. So they just leave. They often do so without announcement. This is your boyfriend or girlfriend that break up with you via text and you didn't even see it coming because they can't have the breakup conversation. So the way I do it is I dodge your phone calls for a week and then I send you a text message. Poof, gone. Now in the church world, these are people who just stop coming. They just, poof, they don't tell anybody. They were upset about something but they didn't want anybody to know because they didn't want to risk being reconciled because they didn't really want to be in the first place and or they just, they just don't want the, the awkward conversation because they lack the pain threshold to have the conversation. Unlike the injustice collector we're going to talk about in a second, they don't want anybody to know because they don't want to do the work that's outlined in the passage right before the parable today that's found in Matthew 18, 15, and following. I encourage you to read that later today. Now, there are two kinds of disappearing acts. There's the kind who disappear. They leave the party early because they don't want to offend the host. And there's the kind that disappear because they don't want to have the difficult conversation. And it can be either one. Now, that's the disappearing act. Number two, the cutoff artist. These are the Cold War people, all right? 
uh, which, by the way, is not peace and is not forgiveness. Cold War is still war. It's just a different kind. This is what you might call the emotional sanctions approach. Not open war, cold war, the embargo. I cut off, I put my carriers around in such a way that you cannot get through this way. You cannot uh, hurt me again this way, uh, and I'm just going to barricade myself in in such a way that you can't do that. This is a teenager that has no choice. They can't leave the house. So what they do is they just go in their room, they shut the door, and they refuse to open it. They stop talking to their parents. Um, married couple, they just stop sleeping together. They stop sleeping in the same room together. They do these kinds. Now, they're together, right? Well, at least we didn't, we didn't divorce, but they're not really married either, functionally. Cold War. In the church world, these are people uh, who check out, but they keep coming. They're dead Christians walking. They don't sing anymore. They don't pray anymore. They don't they gossip. They slander. They chirp. They, they do little passive-aggressive things. Uh, no, sorry, I'm too busy. I can't serve that day. Da, 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 da. And so it's all a part of a Cold War technique to punish people without them necessarily even knowing. I mean, you can imagine in a marital situation how bad this is when both spouses cut the other off emotionally or physically. And when you cut your, your spouse off physically, you're cutting them off emotionally is really what you're doing. That's just a means by which you do it. And if left unchecked, the cutoff artist then turns into the injustice collector. Number three, who itemizes and collects every perceived injustice rather than seeking re reconciliation and forgiveness. And usually they do it as a way of self-justification. It's how they uh, make themselves feel okay to behave how they want to. Their behavior is approved in their own head because of what they believe has happened. And their focus on it is usually on what others have done, not on what they themselves have done. Uh, in a book called Leadership and Self-Deception, which I would recommend to all of you, there's an illustration uh, that the authors use to, to illustrate this particular type of person. So in, in, the, in the book, it's m late night, parents of young kids, husband and wife sleeping next to each other. Baby cries in the middle of the night. So the husband initially wakes up and he looks over at his sleeping wife, who's not stirring at all, and looks at her with great affection and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get up and I'm going to change this baby. My wife, bless her heart, she, she's, she does so much for this family. She's such a blessing to my life. She's a great mom. She's this, she's that. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get up and I'm going to change this baby. But his body says, stay in bed. And so instead of doing what he knows he should do, he stays in bed. And all of a sudden, he starts looking at his wife, who still has not moved while the baby screams, and starts going, why isn't she moving? I mean, what, is she just playing possum? over there? I mean, I'm tired too, you know? And I mean, I work hard. I mean, I got to get up at 8 o'clock in the morning and go to work, you know? I mean, why is she just laying there? I mean, I know she's not deaf. She, she could hear last night when we went to sleep. What's happening here? Why is she doing that? Is she just taking me for granted like she always does? And all of a sudden, this woman who was mother of the century just minutes before, is now unappreciative 
uh, takes him for granted, a bad mom, and all of this. She has not done a thing. She is laying there. What's changed? He changed. And when he betrayed himself by not getting up to go do it, he needed her to be that way so he could justify why he didn't get out of bed. This is how the injustice collector works. She may or may not have done anything. Half of the things we carry around and resent about other people, they never did. We did it in our minds. We used to have a gal, um, this was many years ago, at NBC, and I would come in to preach on Sunday mornings, and uh, we only had a little lobby. It was like 12 feet from the doors that led into the sanctuary, into the sanctuary itself, and I would come in through the back doors, and, and about every other Sunday I would hear, hi, Tim. And it was a lady, and, and she would perch, she would hide in the lobby and so that I would not see her, and she could resent me for not seeing her in the lobby or saying hi to her, okay? Literally, she would hide behind ferns that were in the, in the, in the like, 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 like she was a soldier in the Vietnam War, peeking through the ferns, seeing when I would come through, and so she could get mad at me for doing that, right? Because she did that, you know what it did? It made me not want to see her. And so what happened? I started avoiding her, which made her go, see, he's a jerk. He doesn't like anybody, which made me go, you know what? No, I just don't like you. And then so I start acting that way. And so we went back and forth with this charade for a while. And I finally just went up and I said, so-and-so, I said, can I recommend something? If you really want to talk to me, here's what you can do. First of all, if you want my best, don't say hi to me three minutes before church starts, okay? I tend to be a little preoccupied. The other thing you can do is actually be visible, okay? And then frankly, so-and-so, if, if you really want us to have a good relationship, be nice. And I'll try to be nice. I'll be nice, you be nice. Let's try that and, and see if we don't have a better relationship than the one we have now. Can we try that? you know, she said. And uh, you know what? We actually became buddies over the years. We did. But it didn't start that way, right? So usually what happens is, so that's the injustice collector, personality. Like the guy sleeping next to his wife when the baby cries in the middle of the night, he comes to see his wife as lazy and dishonest and uncaring, a faker, insensitive to his needs, whereas he sees himself as hardworking, a good father, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But here's the key. He has to see her that way. So he creates problems. And the way he sees her will begin to alter his behavior, get this, so that he creates the problems that he needs. So, in uh, the example I just gave you, right? She needed me to be a jerk in order to justify the way that she felt. So she created circumstances in which I could be a jerk so that she could feel justified in thinking I was one. And then I began to reciprocate. And the only way that that thing broke down was somebody had to simply uh, like have a conversation, a direct one, that sought reconciliation. Not, you know, I'm going to take you out. I didn't go to the ushers and say, hey, next time you see her on the property, get rid of her. You know, none of that. I mean, an actual reconciliatory conversation. Now, that's a church lobby thing, right? But you can take the same kind of thing and apply it in, in, in your marriage, in your friendships, in whatever. A lot of the problems that you've got don't even exist. Or 
you think that they're the problem, when in reality you are creating problems that sustain that collusive kind of relationship. What forgiveness does is you stop playing that game. One side refuses to play. You just say, you know what? It's okay. I forgive you. And the other part, they might go, oh, no, 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 no. You ain't getting all that easy. You get over here and argue with me. I mean, honestly, is there anything more infuriating than somebody either telling you to calm down or walking away? It's infuriating for anxious people that want to fight. What Jesus is doing here is he's saying to all of us who would keep the scorecard, where I sit there and like Simon Cowell, an American Idol, I'm sitting there going, ah, a little pitchy there. Uh, you, know what, you know what she didn't do right today? You know, I mean, look at, the, look at the wrinkle in my shirt. I mean, that's just unforgivable. In the Old Testament, you know what would have happened if that had happened. You know, and people start going through this lack of graciousness, lack of tolerance, lack of love, lack of whatever. Or you know what? Uh, you know, hey, you know these. Uh, you know, or, or if I if I go the pastor route, it's like, oh, you know, this uh, church member flaked again. It's like the first time they've done it in like two years, right? They may have had a totally legit reason, but but you kind of go, ah, they, you know, you know. And I'm I'm sitting there going, okay, well. Okay, is there another approach in keeping the scorecard? Jesus says yes. Here's what you do. You just forgive people. Why? Because he's forgiven whatever they've done. Even the worst of earth, guys. Even the worst of earth. God says, if you forgive, trust me, I'm not mocked, a man will reap what he sows. That's Galatians 6. Paul says that allowing God, he says, leave room for God's wrath. But when we trust it to God, we know a couple of things. One is justice, actual justice will be served. It will happen. He will see it through. And he is far more powerful than we are. So when he decides to act, and if his wrath does indeed visit upon the person, uh, you can take some comfort from the fact that he's able to do things you can't do on this earth. I know that sounds creepy and weird, but it is a biblical concept. When you leave room for the wrath of God, God's wrath is just, it's kind, and it's strong. So you don't need to sit there and go, well, just in case... God's preoccupied. In case this one gets past the goalie, I'm going to make sure that I make sure that this person pays the price for what they did. Now, there's always a tension here. What do you mean that we shouldn't ever take actions and steps to right wrongs? No, 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 no. That's not what I'm saying. But you can do that with an unforgiving heart and you can do it with a forgiving heart. By all means, seek justice. That's what we need to do. But there's a difference, and, and you probably know what that is. When you love your kids and you're not holding grudges and hate against your children, then it's easy to forgive them for what's gone on, and you can help them grow from whatever's going on. Discipline of someone you love works that way. Discipline of somebody you hate is really just violence. 
And that's why we have to always be careful about meeting out justice in our own eyes. It's because our scorecards are woefully off. And I will have a propensity to want to, uh, to pull down the point value of my sins and move yours up the chain to benefit myself. But I have to be aware that it is an abomination before God for me to grip my grudges, tally up trespasses, whether privately or publicly. So I, I choose not to vanish without explanation. I don't initiate or allow cold wars in my life. I don't collect injustices or gossip or slander or self-deceive or self-justify. I do what leads to reconciliation and forgiveness every time is what he calls us to do. Matthew 18, the passage right before this. Again, please read it this afternoon. And we do it because that's how God, our king, acted toward us. That when we were pulled apart from him and there was enmity between us and God, he bridged the gap. He did what was necessary to bring us back to full fellowship with God. In Christ, he forgives us as we forgive our debtors. Three quick steps to forgiveness. Number one, receive the gospel fully. Um, if you've never experienced God's lavish forgiveness, it is a lot more difficult, if not impossible, to forgive other people. The root of being able to do it is found in the power of God and in the Holy Spirit, nowhere else. Okay, receive the gospel fully. Feeling forgiven and experiencing forgiveness is what empowers us to forgive. There's an old Spanish story of a father and a son who had become estranged. The son ran away. The father went out to find him uh, to no avail. He couldn't find him. So he took out an ad in a newspaper, and he wrote this in the ad. Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. That Saturday, 800 Pacos showed up looking to be reunited with their dads. <laughs> so people need that. They need that love. They need to feel reconciled. Second, pray to God to transform your heart. This is a, is a raw human endeavor. Uh, good luck. There's something that is beyond a psychology experiment here, okay? This is a transformation of the heart kind of thing. And one way to do this is to memorize Matthew 6, 12 and just commit it to memory. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors from the Lord's Prayer. The assumption is we've forgiven those who've sinned against us, right? It's like assumed in the Lord's Prayer. So when you, when you do it, just repeat that line to yourself and ask for the power of God to do that very thing. And if nothing else, it reminds you, God is assuming that you have forgiven those who've sinned against you. And then third, take the concrete steps, whatever they may be, toward reconciliation. If you're holding on to something, by all means, um, you know, you got, you got to take the step. Matthew 18, the earlier part of the chapter, uh, he gives some rounds and some steps there for, for us to take. But a lot of times it's a simple phone call. It's a simple letter you write. It's a simple something that's honest and seasoned with the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, and sometimes it's really literally a matter of what's going on in here and you just making a decision to release it and just say, you know what? I probably could sit around chewing on this for the next 10 years, but I'm not going to. I'm going to release it because I'm not carrying this thing around Disneyland every day. Just not. I'm setting it down. 
so that, that what they've done to me or against me does not continue to hold me captive anymore. So it happened. I can't change that. But I'm going to leave it to the Lord. I'm going to trust his judgment. I'm going to trust his wrath. And I'm going to go do this. And if, and if it turns out that God decides to grant them clemency, then you know what? I need to be reminded that he gave me clemency. So, but that's up to him. But he says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Trust that. Um, there was some group, a group of kids at Ohio State that rented a, one of those kind of beater houses just off a college campus to live in. There's five of them living in this house. And, uh, they thought the house had a ghost. They'd come home and like cabinet doors were open. And a microwave door was open. Pillows on the couch were disheveled. But everybody had been gone, so they were trying to figure out what is happening. Well, they did a little digging around, and again, one day, they heard some noises from the basement. And so they're like, okay, the options are serial killer. Um, <laughs> Uh, some sort of weird animal has gotten into the basement, whatever. So they go to the door and they hear all the noise. They open the door. They go down to the basement. They still hear noise, but they don't see anything. Like, what is that? They go. There's a door near the water heater. They open the door, and inside there is a full bedroom with a bed, a desk, and a door leading to the outside that they had never seen before. And so there had been a guy living in their house for a long time. And he would wait until they left. And then he would go upstairs and he'd cook his food in the microwave and do whatever else he needed to do. Rent-free is the term we use, right? Rent-free in our heads. Most of you, when we started down into this whole journey this morning, you knew the person, the group of people. Some of you got a whole village living in the basement, rent-free. Um, I have bad news for you and good news. Ready? Here's the bad news. No one lives in there rent-free. It's just you're paying the rent, okay? It's costly to allow somebody the space here in here. That's negative. So there's a cost, but you're the one paying it, not them. And the good news is Jesus has given us an answer here. The answer is to simply say, you're not going to get to live there anymore. I don't hold grudges anymore. Against you, I, I, what you did was unspeakably awful. I'm not going to I'm not going to deny that, and I'm not going to maybe give you a, a chance to hurt me again but I am going to release this to God so that you don't get to hold me captive for the rest of my life. That is so freeing and so pleasing to God. And some of you might not even realize, it's like going around Disneyland all the time. You didn't even realize that you hated, why you hated Disneyland. And it really wasn't that Disney's terrible, it was that you were carrying all this weight and you didn't even realize it. You know, it's like when you get older and you're like, why do my feet hurt all the time? You're like, well, I'm carrying around 30, 40 extra pounds from when I was in high school. That's why. 
There's more, but if you could get rid of the weight or whatever, it would, everything about you would feel differently, all right? God's offering that to you. We can't say Jesus doesn't understand. We can say other things. We can't say that. He suffered the injustice, not only of what happened to him on the cross, but all of the world's sins being laid upon him, though he was innocent. Nobody has suffered greater injustice, and nobody's had to forgive more than he has. He gets it. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And now we say he's our king. That means what he says rules. He is our forgiver and that I owe him everything. And yet he said, you're forgiven. So I live there. And so as we gather in the Lord's table this morning, which we're going to do right now, if you have the elements, go ahead and get them ready. If you didn't and you'd like the communion elements, go ahead and put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you. We remember Jesus who endured such opposition from sinful men. You want to see a scorecard? We could look at his. It's got everybody's name on it, and it's got everything we've ever done. And yet he chooses not to. The cross, he buries it. He destroys it and brings forgiveness instead. So with bread and cup, we remember him. And as I pray, I'm going to read Colossians 3, 12 to 17 as a prayer for us as we reflect. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we gather. And in the name of Christ, we, um, we remember how much we've been forgiven in the great distance that he traveled from heaven to earth, earth to the cross. And now, Father, as he sits at your right hand, dwelling in victory, calling us to forgive, Father, not just because it pleases you, which that would be enough, but because it sets us free from the jaundicing of, of, of hate in this world. Father, we say in our taking of communion that we trust you, we trust your wisdom, and we say yes to what you have to say. Father, for the grudges that we hold, I pray, Father, for everybody in this room that we would lay them down, that you would set us free today from the brokenness, the pain, the anger, the rage, and that you would, you would take those things, Father, and set us free. We take these words to heart, Lord. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds together everything in perfect harmony. May it be so among us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, the one that is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and endured such opposition from us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.